Yeah, my my dad was conveniently sick when we were doing the Christmas decorations. That that meant I had to lift lift stuff. And turns out there's a lot of glitter on Christmas decorations. Uh, yeah, I had it all in my face and beard, and I didn't know. It's one of those disadvantages if you don't have a wife to tell you that kind of stuff. I was walking around town, glitter all over my face. But anyway, so it's a good time. Um, last weekend, I was actually at a uh, retreat weekend that was down in well, Caroline, Alberta. Uh, it was a good time. That's with the Ministry of Resurgence. They were here in September. Um, the the very last day was there. This is a strange story, but I'll start with this. The last 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 day they were there. They, they were serving um, taco. Well, I guess what it would be, it'd be like taco salad basically. And so I was going through the buffet, and I was like, cool, getting all the taco stuff. Then I went to the the end, and there was some dressings there, and I saw a red one, and I'm thinking, oh, that's Catalina dressing. You know, it's like French dressing. That's what we normally put on taco salads. So I just literally put that all over my uh, taco salad. And as I'm, like, sitting there eating, I was like, oh, they really put a lot of spice on this meat. And um, I'm not a – I don't come from a spice background at all. Um, like, literally, when I grew up, uh, hot sauce was the punishment. If you ever said a bad word, there was Tabasco sauce in, in the pantry. I never did say a bad word, um, but I grew up scared of hot sauce. But anyways, it turned out that I didn't put Catalina dressing all over my taco salad. In fact, I put Frank's red hot sauce. That was in a big, big, big bottle. Um, and you might be a hot sauce person, that's mild to you, but to me, that's next level. Um, but anyways, sometimes there's things when we, you know, when we, when we this we're going to transition to my message very oddly and strangely here. But when we have this sense of familiarity, sometimes we just go through the motions. So I had a familiarity with red bottles that are like this big, and I thought Catalina dressing was there. I didn't look at it, and so I poured it all over my hot sauce, and then I paid the price for it. Uh, it was quite the experience. Um, but anyways, I think we can do that to the Christmas story too. We just go through the motions, not even really look at the details, just go through it. I think you actually pay the price for it too. It doesn't burn your mouth, but you miss out on how profound it is. And that's what my message is today. The Christmas story more profound than you know. So we're going to put some hot sauce on the Christmas story this morning. You know, I think it, it actually brilliantly foreshadows so much of what Jesus came to do. Uh, very much so it preaches the gospel message or the salvation message that's in it. I'm going to lay some theological groundwork to help you more appreciate the Christmas story. And so as we go through this Christmas season, we're just starting. And my hope is that, you know, this, this message will just give you a greater appreciation for why Jesus came and all that he accomplished. It's way too easy just to go through the motions, to shrug things off, to, um, to not really pay attention to the details. You know, we think, oh, you know, I've, I've done this a hundred times, you know. Um, Christmas, you know, and we can just shrug it off, and then oftentimes we'll uh, go to the more entertaining, quote-unquote, entertaining aspects of Christmas, and totally just forget about that Christmas literally is probably the second most impactful event in human history, other than the, the death and resurrection of Jesus. My hope is, anyway, that this will help you just kind of bask in how amazing Jesus is throughout this Christmas season. So we're going to start in Luke 1, and then go to Luke 2, I'm going to read kind of just parts of the Christmas story. Um, I would assume you have a decent amount of familiarity with it, but maybe you don't, but we're just going to go through it, and then we'll kind of do a bit of a deep dive and get some fun connections going. All right, so here we go. Luke, Luke 1, it'll be 26 through 35. It's going to be on the screen here. So in the, six months, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. 
Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored women. The Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think of what the Lord could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have, been, you have found favor with God. For you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary asked the angel, but how can this happen? I am a virgin. The angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby will be born so the baby to be born will be holy, and he will, he will be called the Son of God. That's kind of the conception story of, of Jesus, supernaturally conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, put into Mary's womb. And we have Luke 2, fast forward about nine months. Luke 2, 1 through, 14, 1 through 14. At that time, the Roman Emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quirius, or use of that name, was governor of Syria. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for the census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, to whom he was engaged, who was now expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. That night they, there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel reassured them, Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. Suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, Glory to God in highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. So there's the famous Christmas story right there, kind of the conception and the birth of Jesus. So what we're going to go through today is how those narratives actually prophetically foreshadow a lot of what Jesus came to do and, and what he came to accomplish there's critics of the Bible that think, you know, it's just a story, it's just man-made, but what I'm going to show you today is that there's so many amazing kind of prophetic connections that, and this is all throughout the scripture that it's like this, that it just, you can't rationally say, you know, a human being wrote, happened to write this. Um, so many amazing connections basically are made. So the first one, and most famously, is that the Christmas story foreshadows the death and resurrection of Jesus. You know, the more you study scripture, the more it's going to be revealed to you, and so we're going to take some time to go through this conception story, the birth story, and do a bit of sleuthing and see how it foreshadows the death and resurrection of Jesus. So we're going to use a lot of the Bible, but also a lot of historical sources that we can kind of key in on to help us give more information to what's going on too. So first, yeah, we're going to look at the, the date of, of the conception of Jesus. So uh, as you know, Christmas is celebrated December 25th. Now if you just go back nine months from that time, we're dealing with around March 25th, so just keep that in your mind. So first, you know, Luke 1 starts up, uh, we didn't read this part, but it starts about the conception of uh, John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. So his dad, uh, Zachariah, and his mom, Elizabeth, can't have any kids. But Zachariah, he's a priest, he serves in the temple. And there's a line there in Luke 1, 5 that says, He belongs to the priestly family of Abijah. That was one of uh, David's mighty men. But, so he, he's a part of this, this family, the family of Abijah. And according to First Chronicles, there's 24 different families that serve in the temple. 
and the descendants of Abijah, they are one of those families, and so they get a couple weeks out of the year that they serve in the temple. Secondly, it says that Zechariah was chosen with a lottery system to enter the, uh, they basically drew names out of a hat kind of thing, just like we did today. Figure out who's going to go into the inner sanctuary of the temple and who's going to light the incense, who's going to go into the holy place. And um, at this time, this would, this would, it would be like winning the lottery, basically, because if you think of uh, the 12 tribes of Israel, how they started as just singular families, but they grew into a whole nation. So he literally is competing against thousands of other people within the um, this Levite tribe of Abijah, basically. He happens to get his name drawn. He goes in, and it also says in Scripture that there's a great crowd that's outside when this is happening. Great crowd. So while Zachariah's in the temple, an angel talks to him and says, hey, you and your wife are going to have a kid. And of course, he's, he doesn't believe it because obviously they've tried a bunch of times and they're, they're now uh, way up there in years and it's impossible. But God's saying, no, we're going to supernaturally enable you to have a child. This is the cousins, by the way, of, of Jesus' family. So anyways, when, it goes, when it's talking about there being a great crowd there, there's only two Jewish holidays where a great crowd shows up. One of them is Yom Kippur. The other one's Passover. So Yom Kippur happens about September 25th. The Jewish calendar follows the moon. The moon it gets a little confusing. But anyways, that's normally where it's around. Passover again would be around that March 25th area. So funnily enough, we also have a bunch of temple schedules that we have found via archaeology. So if you've ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, there was some digging done around um, the Israel area kind of in the 1940s, and we found all sorts of ancient manuscripts there, a lot of scripture, but also um, a bunch of other stuff that isn't scripture but historical. So we have a bunch of the temple schedules, when people served in the temple, and sure enough, it says the descendants of Abijah served on Yom Kippur. Huge Jewish holiday. Yom Kippur means the Day of Atonement. This usually ends, yeah, again, uh, it's around this, this September 25th. We also have about 100 manuscripts that we found um, that date back to about 100 years after Jesus that say that Zechariah was in the temple at Yom Kippur. So this is when you do a little bit of math. It's pretty simple. So John the Baptist is conceived at Yom Kippur, September 25th. Fast forward six months. You have March 25th. That's when... Because um, Jesus is six months younger than John, John the Baptist. Okay, so we have March 25th, Passover time, when Jesus is conceived via the power of the Holy Spirit. So what's Passover, if you don't know? So Passover is when Israel commemorates the gift of salvation that they received when they escaped from Egypt. So they were saved you know, from death. And what they had to do was sacrifice a lamb. And they recognized that this sacrificial lamb that would be kind of dying in their place would save them from death. Now, fast forward now in the story of Jesus, he actually dies on Passover. When we celebrate Easter, that's that same time of year. So interesting enough that Jesus is conceived on the same day that he would later die. So Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Forevermore, you know, he ended the sacrificial system. So he dies on Passover 33 years after he's conceived on Passover. That's how we get the... Um, Part of the, why we know Jesus is born December 25th is this kind of math. Also, we happen to have lots of existing records throughout Christian history of Jesus being born December 25th. So again, that's kind of interesting. The conception, right at the conception, if you realize when this is all happening, it's all happening right on Passover. It's being foreshadowed right, at the, right on his first kind of day in existence as a human being in his mother's womb, right on Passover. This is going to be the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. There's a lot more to come. So if you now fast forward to his birth narrative. 
the angels are telling the shepherds, you know, you know what Jesus is going to be known for. He's going to be the Savior, the Messiah, the Lord. So let's read again from Luke 2, 11 and 12 here. It says, the Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. So a lot of prophetic foreshadowing gets missed when you don't really understand the context around Jesus' birth as well. Same thing with the conception. When you study the conception, it's like, oh, there's a lot of context here I'm picking up on. Very cool. Same thing with the birth. So there's no, there's no more room in the inn. So Joseph and Mary have to stay in a stable, basically. They have to go where the animals are to seek some shelter. So a stable at that time would have actually been primarily a cave. So it's a desert climate, and actually most things in this area were uh, built out of rock. And Jesus actually being born in a cave is a historical position of, of, of Christianity, has been since the beginning. Uh, a fellow by the name of Justin Martyr, he, uh, he lived about 100 years after Jesus, and he uh, is from an area just outside of Bethlehem, and he's born, born and raised in kind of the area, and, and he says, uh, yeah, that Jesus was born in a cave, um, just outside, you know, the, the village of Bethlehem. So he's writing about this. We still have his, uh, his writings today. He's a local source. And he would have been around at the same time as, like, the disciples of the disciples would have been around. So he, he would know the truth. He, he's close to the source. Again, we also have hundreds of copies of a particular writing from around that time period. Also talks about Jesus being born in a cave. Uh, then he fast forward to 235 A.D., and there's a scholar named Origen. He's born in Egypt, but he later moved to the Israel area. And this is what he says. I have a quote from him on the screen here. It says, With respect to the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, if anyone desires to have additional evidence, there is shown in Bethlehem the cave where he was born, and the manger in the cave where he was wrapped in swaddling cloths. And this site is greatly talked of in, the, in surrounding places, even among the enemies of the faith. It is being said that in this, that in this cave was born that Jesus who was worshipped by Christians. So Origen is literally saying that you can still go there and see exactly where Jesus was born. This is 200 years after he had died. Then about 300 years after he had died, a church gets built over top of that cave, 339 A.D., and portions of that church actually survive to this day. Uh, the original church has been rebuilt and expanded numerous times since then, uh, but you can actually go to Bethlehem today and go into, go into this church and look down through a hole in the floor right at the manger where Jesus was born. Speaking of mangers, what is a manger? So a manger is a feeding trough, basically, that the animals eat and drink out of it. So, you know, nowadays our mangers are basically uh, big metal steel tubs. And I was thinking, actually, our baptismal tank is technically a manger. But anyways. But, you know, back in Jesus' day, you know, they, they built, again, they built a lot of stuff out of stone. It's a very rocky place, and it's limestone, very easy to carve. So the manger in the cave would basically be an area in the cave that was just carved kind of out of the, the rock to hold the, the straw or the water or whatever animals are eating and drinking. Here's a couple pictures of what a manger would look like kind of inside of a cave situation there. Also, okay, going into when Jesus is born, it says, so Joseph being the dad, he would have washed him, washed the blood off of him, and then he wrapped him in Strips of linen. Then remember the angel says, the sign of the Messiah is going to be this child of promise, basically in this dark cave in a manger setting, lying you know, on a slab of limestone wrapped in strips of linen. So if you think of that, gee, this is kind of a weird thing. If we go to the next picture, wrapped in strips of linen. 
Now, if you read Jesus' death narrative, the same thing happens to him after he dies where he is wrapped in strips of linen, which is the common thing they did with people that died. So again, think of, this, think of kind of the connections here between the tomb and the manger setting. Both of them we have Jesus wrapped in strips of linen, kind of lying in a cave essentially. So again, the whole, mer- the whole manger scene foreshadowing prophetically Jesus' resurrection. Interestingly enough, as I was saying that Joseph, his dad, would have been the one to wrap him in strips of cloth. Fast forward to his death, there's a man that also is named Joseph who wraps Jesus after he dies in strips of cloth. His name's Joseph Arimathea. Similarly, who's also, um, Mary obviously is there at the birth. The very first person to talk to Jesus when he resurrects, name also happens to be Mary. That's Mary Magdalene. So again, all sorts of foreshadowing and things going back and forth. That's scripture for you. There's all sorts of brilliant connections and, and, and callbacks all the time. So very much so, the birth narrative is pointing towards the death and resurrection of Jesus. All sorts of amazing foundational Christian theology is basically foreshadowed in this moment. You know, when Jesus, is, when Jesus comes to this earth, you know, he's, he's already the king of kings. He's already the lord of lords. He's already the, you know, he's a member of the royal family of the universe. But he leaves all of that. He leaves this divine setting to come into this earthly setting. He becomes a human being. And God supernaturally places him within Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit. Repeating this so you'll remember it for stuff that's about to come later. Again, how this exactly happened, how God put Jesus, who again already existed, supernaturally in Mary's womb. Yeah, that's just supernatural. Hard to wrap your head around, but it's God. He can do that kind of stuff. Also, when Jesus is born, he's born into the royal line of David in Bethlehem. So the genealogies of Jesus that appear in Matthew and Luke that we often skip over, those actually both show that um, on Mary's side and Joseph's side, they're both descendants of David, so therefore they're both royal. So Jesus um, is essentially gets adopted into this human family that's royal on both sides. We'll key in on this in a second. And then when Jesus is born, all of heaven rejoices. So that's the Christmas story. Now watch how this foreshadows various aspects of, the fa- of Christian theology. So secondly, one of the big foreshadowing kind of narratives that come out of the Christmas story is new birth or being born again. So again, Jesus already existed, has always existed, but he experiences a new birth. Funnily enough, the concept of being quote-unquote born again, to experience a new birth is a foundational concept of Christian theology. So here we have John 3, 1 to 6. This is when Jesus is talking to a Jewish religious leader, and he wants to know, you know, how can we be saved, basically? This is what Jesus' this is Jesus's response every time someone asks, how, how can you be saved? John 3, 1 to 6. It's a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What do you mean, exclaimed Nicodemus? How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus replied, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and of the spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. So again, in the Christmas story, Jesus, is, Jesus experienced a divine birth, enabled by the Holy Spirit. Again, he already existed, but this new birth that happens makes him 
something new. Now, as Christians, when we become, you know, followers of Jesus, when we say, Jesus, like, you can have my life, I'm going to follow you, something supernatural happens. God comes into our life, and he supernaturally makes us new. He says, you are now born again. The old is gone, the new has come. We get to experience a new birth. 1 Peter 3, uh, 3 or 4 says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again, because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation, and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. 2 Corinthians 15, 7. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. When we think of the fact that when we become a Christian, we become a new person. We, we get born again. We still look the same, but yet we're brand new. Is that a hard concept to wrap your, your head around? Yes. But again, similar to Jesus' birth, it's supernatural. It's just what God can do. God can remove your old sinful nature, your sinful way of living, and he can make you into a completely new creation. He can remove the sins of your past as far as the east is from the west. And then he gives you a spirit to enable you to live a life that can conquer the temptation of sin. So interesting that Jesus' life and the whole birth narrative is foreshadowing kind of the process of salvation. Jesus is salvation, and he's also foreshadowing how he's going to do it. It's going to make people new, remove their sin from them, make them a new creation so they can experience a supernatural new birth. Thirdly, this new birth, when we're, when we're being born again as Christians, we're also being adopted into royalty. Again, baby Jesus, when he is born, even though he's actually God's child, he's heavenly royal, he gets adopted to be earthly royal, basically. This is a bit kind of flipped for us. We get to be adopted into Jesus' family when we become Christians, and we become part of the heavenly royal family. Again, it's amazing foreshadowing this in, in the Christmas narrative. Go over to Ephesians 1.5 here. It says, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. 1 Peter 2.9. For you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. You might not realize that, that when you become a Christian, you are adopted into the royal family of the universe. You might have thought to yourself that you have no value, that you're kind of a nobody, but when you become a Christian, you become royalty. Again, foreshadowed in the Christmas story. Fourthly, another thing that's foreshadowed in the Christmas story is that when this new baby is born, that's, that's royal, there's a great rejoicing. Heaven opens up. There's a party in heaven proclaiming, you know, how amazing, you know, this event is. All, you know, the heavens opened up. Angels rejoicing. They're excited. What's neat is that when you become a Christian, when you are born again, and you are made a member of the royal family of the, of the universe, all of heaven rejoices. The same, the same thing that they did way back when Jesus was born, they did for you when you became a Christian, or they will do for you when you become a Christian. All of heaven will rejoice because of this new royal birth, this new member of the royal family. That's how big of a deal you are to heaven. All of heaven will stop and rejoice when you become a member of the royal family, when you decide to follow Jesus. 
Luke 15, 10, Jesus talks about this. He talks about this a couple different times, but here's just one, Luke 15, 10. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. That's pretty amazing. Fifthly, another big aspect of you know, Christian theology that the, the, the birth narrative of Jesus kind of foreshadows is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So we go right back to Jesus' conception here. The angel meets Mary, tells her that the Holy Spirit's going to come upon her with power and put Jesus inside of her. Luke 1, 34 through 35. Mary asked the angel, but how can this happen? I am a virgin. The angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy and he will be called the Son of God. So the Holy Spirit comes upon Mary, fills her with Jesus. Again, turns out that's foreshadowing of what Jesus is going to do in his kind of story and message of salvation. Because one day, it turns out, you know, that the Holy Spirit's going to put Jesus, he's going to put the very Spirit of God in all the followers of Jesus. So again, when you were born again and you become royalty and all of heaven rejoices, the other thing that happens is the Holy Spirit comes and lives and comes upon you and dwells within you. So what Jesus says to his disciples is going to happen um, numerous times. We're going to read right after resurrection. He's saying this. Luke 24, 49. It says, Now I will send the Holy Spirit, just as my Father promised, but stay here in the city until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you with power from heaven. Notice the similar language there that was given to Mary and also what was given to the disciples, what was going to happen. So the disciples had to wait about 50 days until the day of Pentecost and and. Uh, 50 days after Jesus died to, yeah, Pentecost. You'll note Jesus' life happens to follow the kind of the, the big Jewish holidays. But again, yeah, on, on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came, came upon the disciples with power, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. God himself came and dwelt within them. All of a sudden, the followers of Jesus became carriers of him. They became carriers of the very Spirit of God. And that happens every time someone turns to Jesus. Every time they repent and turn to Jesus and they experience that, that new birth and they become royalty and all of heaven rejoices, the very spirit of God lives inside of them, comes and lives in. The power of God comes upon them and the, and the presence of God just begins to stay inside of us. If you don't know who the Holy Spirit is, he's the third member of the Trinity. There's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has the exact same essence as Jesus and the Father. They're all God. Expressed differently in, in three different persons, but they're all still God. He's the same divine essence of Jesus. So again, Mary physically carried Jesus within her. We now spiritually carry the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit within us. Romans 8, 9. For you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And remember that those who do not have the spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to him at all. And Christ lives within you, so even though your body will die because of sin, the spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God. See, when the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us, that also gives us eternal life. We're going to live on in heaven with Jesus forever because of the very spirit of Christ, the very spirit of God, the Holy Spirit lives within us. So again, that's neat. Mary physically is carrying Jesus within her. And the Holy Spirit came upon her and put the kind of God within her. Funnily enough, that was foreshadowing 
33 years later, that that's kind of, in a different way, that kind of a thing was going to happen to all Christians. God is going to take up residence inside of all of us. So in conclusion this morning, you know, this is really just the tip of the iceberg. We could kind of do this all day uh, and go through how amazing the Christmas story is and all the things that it is foreshadowing. But we can't really plumb the depths of this amazing story in a singular message. Couldn't keep you here all day. I'm not that mean. But let me just give you some takeaways here. The Christmas story is ultimately about salvation. And we often key in on the Easter story and the death and resurrection of Jesus, but the Christmas story is very much so a part of that same narrative. This is the beginning of Jesus' rescue mission. And he proclaimed it right from the beginning. This is what I'm going to do. This is the salvation message. This is what we're going to do to people. I'm going I'm to make them new creations. They're going to experience a supernatural new birth. And, and I'm going to make them royal. And all of heaven is just going to rejoice when they come into the kingdom. And I'm going to put my very spirit inside of this. All of this is foreshadowed right from the beginning. So it's very much so the Christmas story is, is about salvation. It's about the gospel. It's about why Jesus came to this earth. Now, if you've never kind of gone through that process of giving your life over to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I want you to be the king of my life. Jesus, like, I'm tired of living my life my own way. I want to give it to you instead. I'm going to trust you that you know, you're a better director of things than I am. If you've never done that, if you've never become this new person, this supernaturally new person, where God removes your sins from you as far as Jesus from the West, where you, if you've never experienced what it's like for Jesus to give you a new royal identity, if you've never experienced what it's like when the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside you and begins to minister to you from the inside out and begins to, to speak to you and guide you in all righteousness, well, Christmas is a great time to make that happen. Salvation is the greatest gift ever given. And if you've never received the gift of salvation, well, the Christmas season is a great time to do it. We'd love to pray with you after the service, just up here at the front, if that's you. Secondly, if that already is you, and you've already walked through that process, and God has already made you new, and you, and you realize that you're, you're royal, and you, and you realize you know, your sin's been removed from you, and you realize that heaven is cheering you on, and you realize that the Holy Spirit's within you, I hope you just walk away with a better appreciation for Scripture this morning and kind of a, a better appreciation just how profound the Christmas story really is. It truly is this, you know, the second greatest event in human history other than the death and resurrection of Jesus when God invaded this earth and began his salvation plan. I also want you, like, if you ever have any questions, is Scripture really God's word? I hope this was kind of showing you that it is. The amount of connections scripturally are just wild. I think there's hundreds of thousands of connections some people have worked it out, and it's quite something. It's radical. It's definitely God's word. Thirdly, I hope you learned something today, and I, and I hope that that makes you open to receiving fresh revelation from God this Christmas season. Again, I think we can easily just go on a holiday autopilot and just go through the motions. Oh, you know, at the Christmas story, I've been there, done that, heard that and just kind of go through the motions. But I believe that God has something fresh for all of us this Christmas season. He wants to speak to us through this story as we kind of dwell on this this month in different ways. God wants to speak to you. There's always something new when it comes to God, always something new. So resist the urge to go on Christmas autopilot and to just go through the motions and spend some time kind of dwelling on this 
this narrative, this story. And just let God speak to you. Let God reveal things to you. Let God minister to you. Let him show you just how much you're worth to him. He would kind of go through all of this and set all of this up. It really is worth giving this story the honor that it deserves. To make it the forefront of our consciousness through this season. I think the temptation that is out there is to really put it at the back on the back burner. But I believe it's supposed to be at the forefront of our consciousness during this season. So don't let this, this story of Jesus get lost in the shuffle this Christmas season. So whatever you need to do this December to really kind of dive in and keep Jesus central and to keep this story central, do it. And I believe if you do that, God will reveal things to you and he will minister to you in great and amazing ways. Because as we started with, the Christmas story is far more profound than you'll know or you'll ever know. God can use it to minister to you again and again and again all the days of your life. So we're going to end in prayer here. And if, uh, at the end of the service here, if you want prayer for any reason... We believe in the power of prayer. We have the very Holy Spirit of God living within us. Scripture says the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives within us. So we believe that anything is possible. We believe in the supernatural. So if you want prayer for anything, we'd love to pray with you. If not, be blessed as you leave. But yeah, we'll just end in prayer here. Dear Jesus, we just thank you for this amazing Christmas story. And God, we repent of all the times that we've honestly kind of just sloughed it off and thought, oh, I've heard it before. It's that same story. God, we repent for the times we haven't even take, we haven't taken Scripture as seriously as we, we should have. And, and to realize that it is alive and active. That the Holy Spirit moves through it and can speak to us again and again and again and again. And so, God, as this is a time of year where we often even go through the Christmas narrative and we dwell on it. God, I pray that you would just minister to people's hearts and you would reveal things to them that they never even noticed and, and picked up on. The different aspects of the story would speak to them on, on different levels than ever before. This would be a Christmas season that's all about encounters with you. And it would be all about just ministering to, you know, to people's souls. And I, God, I pray that an excitement would begin to arise. We just have, a, have an excitement about the Christmas story. It's excited about how profound that it is and how amazing that it is when God invaded the earth and kick-started his amazing salvation plan. God, I pray you'd give us opportunities to even share this with people this, this season, to share them what the real meaning of Christmas is. That we've been celebrating Jesus' birth on December 25th, going back all the way to the beginning. And that this is a very, very special time of year. This is an exciting time of year when we talk about you know, the greatest gift ever given. The gift that changed the world. The gift that brought us salvation. And God, as I pray, that, that this is also a tough season for many people as well. Sometimes they don't have the joy that others have. But God, we believe that all things are possible with you. God, as there are many elements in this story that are supernatural and even beyond our comprehension. Your word says you can also give us a peace that surpasses all understanding. You can give us a joy unspeakable, a joy that we can't even articulate. So God, we just pray for that as well for people this season. In fact, we pray it for all of us. We would love to have 
a peace that surpasses all understanding and a joy unspeakable and uncontainable and un indescribable. So God, I pray you just minister to your people this season. And this would be a Christmas like no other. A Christmas that, where people really just drew close to God. And so many amazing things about God were just revealed to them. And their faith just began to just grow and grow and grow. And God, for those that have yet, yet to become Christians, they've yet to really put your life, their life into your hands. God, we just pray for an amazing Christmas to have for them where they receive the greatest gift ever given and they receive that salvation from God. And God, we know that their life will never be the same after they do that. And so we just join in with heaven and rejoice for that happening. In your name we pray, amen.